Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Okay, so this is DDDJ, but unlike normal weeks, it's Boxing Day. I'm just going to have a wee bit of fun. I'm reading, it's a story time plated show, and we're reading Sherlock Holmes, The Adventure of the Norwood Builder by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. From the point of view of the criminal expert, said Mr. Sherlock Holmes, London has become a singularly uninteresting city since the death of the late lamented Professor Moriarty. I can hardly think you would find many decent citizens to agree with you, I answered. Well, well, I must not be selfish, said he, as he pushed back his chair from the breakfast table. The community is certainly the gainer, and no one the loser, save the poor out-of-work specialist whose occupation has gone. With that man in the field, one of the morning paper presented infinite possibilities. Often, it was only the smallest trace, Watson, the faintest indication, and yet it was enough to tell me that the great magnet brain was out there, as the gentlest tremors of the edges of the web remind one of the foul spider which lurks in the centre. Petty thefts, wanton assaults, purposeless, out- purposeless outrage. To the man who held the clue, all good we worked into the one connected hole. To the scientific student of the higher criminal world, no capital in L- Europe offered the advantages which London then possessed. But now, he shrugged his shoulders in humorous deprecation on the state of things which he had himself done so much to produce. At the time of which I speak, Holmes had been back for some months, and I, at his request, had sold his practice and returned to share the old quarters in Baker Street. A young doctor named Vernier had purchased my small Kensington practice and given with astonishing little demur the highest price that I ventured to ask, an incident which only explained itself some years later when I found that Vernier was the distant relation of Holmes and that it was my friend who had really found the money. A month of partnership had not been so uneventful as he had stated, for I find, when looking at my, over my notes, that this pre- period includes the case of the paper of ex-president Morello and also the shocking affair of the Dutch, Dutch steamship Friesland, which so nearly cost both of us our lives. His cold and proud nature was always averse, however, from anything in the shape of public applause, and he bound himself in the most stringent terms to say no further word of himself, his methods, or his successes, a prohibition which, as I have explained, has only now been removed. Mr Sherlock Holmes was leaning back in his chair after his whimsical protest, and was unfolding his morning paper in a leisurely fashion, when our attention was arrested by a tremendous ring at the bell, followed immediately by a hollow drumming sound, as if someone was beating on the outer door with his fist. As it opened, there came a tumultuous rush into the hall, rapid feet clattered up the stair, and an instant later a wild-eyed and frantic young man, pale, dishevelled and palpitating, burst into the room. He looked from one to the other of us, and under a gaze of inquiry, he became conscious that some apology was needed for his unceremonious entry. I'm sorry, Mr Holmes, he cried. You mustn't blame me. I am nearly mad. Mr Holmes, I am the unhappy John Hector McFarlane. He made the announcement as if the name alone would explain both his visit and its manner. But I could see from his by my companion's unresponsive face that it meant no more to him than to me. Have a seat, Mr McFarlane, said he, pushing his seat across. I am sure that with your symptoms, my friend Dr Watson here would prescribe a sedative. The weather has been so very warm the past few days. Now, if you feel more composed, I'd be glad if you'd settle down in that chair and tell you very slowly and quietly who you are and what it is that you want. You're mentioning your name as if I should recognise it, but I assure you that beyond the obvious facts that you are a bachelor, a solicitor, a Freemason and an asthmatic, I know nothing whatsoever about you. Familiar as I was with my friend's methods, it was not difficult for me to follow his deductions and to observe the 
untidiness of attire, a sheaf of legal papers, the watch charm and the breathing which had prompted them. Her client, however, stared in his amazement. Yes, I am all that, Mr Holmes, and in addition, I am the most unfortunate man at this moment in London. For heaven's sake, don't abandon me, Mr Holmes. If they come to arrest me before I finish my story, make them give me time so that I may tell you the whole truth. I could go to jail happy if I knew that you are working for me outside. Arrest you? said Holmes. This is really most gra- most interesting. On what charge do you expect to be arrested? Upon the charge of murdering Mr Jonas Allcaker of Lower Norwood. My companion's expressive face showed a sympathy which was not, I am afraid, entirely unmixed with satisfaction. Dear me, said he. It was only this moment at breakfast that I was saying to my friend, Dr Watson, that sensational cases had disappeared out of her papers. Her visitor stretched forward a quivering hand and picked up the Daily Telegraph, which still lay upon Holmes's knee. If you had looked at it, sir, you would have seen at a glance what the errand is in which I have come to you this morning. I feel as if my name and misfortune must be in every man's mouth. He turned it over to expose the central page. Here it is, and with your permission I will read it to you. Listen to this, Mr Holmes. The headlines are Mysterious affair at Nor- Lower Norwood Disappearance of a well-known builder Suspicion of murder and arson A clue to the criminal That is a clue to which they are already following Mr Holmes I know that it leads infallibly to me I have been followed from London Bridge Station And I am sure they are only waiting for the warrant to arrest me It would break my mother's heart It will break her heart He rang his hands in his agony of apprehension And swayed backwards and forwards in his chair I looked with interest upon this man, who was accused of being the perpetrator of a crime of violence. He was flaxen-eared and handsome, in a washed-out negative fashion, with frightened blue eyes and a clean-shaven face, with a weak, sensitive mouth. His age may have been about twenty-seven, his dress and bearing that of a gentleman. From the pocket of his light summer overcoat protruded the bundle of endorsed papers which proclaimed his profession. We must use what time we have, said Holmes. Watson. Would you have the kindness to take the paper and to read the paragraph in question? Underneath the vigorous headlines which our client had quoted, I read the following suggestive narrative. Late last night, or early this morning, an incident occurred at Lower Norwood which points, it is feared, to a serious crime. Mr Jonas Oldacre is a well-known resident of that suburb where he has carried on his business as a builder for many years. Mr Oldacre is a bachelor, 52 years of age, and lives in Deep Dean House, at the signed end of that town of that name. He has a reputation of being a man of eccentric habits, secretive and retiring. For some years he has practically withdrawn from the business, in which he is said to have amassed considerable wealth. A small timber yard still exists, however, at the back of the house, and last night, about twelve o'clock, an alarm was given that one of the stacks was on fire. The engines were soon upon the spot, but the dry wood burned with great fury, and it was impossible to arrest the conflagration until the stack had been entirely consumed. Up to this point, the incident bore the appearance of an ordinary accident, but fresh indications seemed to point to serious crime. Surprise was expressed at the absence of the master of the establishment from the scene of the fire, and an inquiry followed which showed that he had disappeared from the house. An examination of the room revealed that the bed had not been slept in, that a safe which stood in it was open, that a number of important papers were scattered throughout the room, and finally there were signs of a murderous struggle, Slight traces of the blood being found within the room, and an oaken walking stick which also showed stains of blood upon the handle. It is known that Mr Jonas Oldacre had received a late visitor in his bedroom upon that night, and a stick had been found as identified as the property of this person, who is a young London solicitor named John Hector McFarlane, junior partner of Graham McFarlane of 426 Gresham Buildings, EC. 
The police believe they have evidence for their, in a position which supplies a very convincing motive for the crime, and altogether it cannot be doubted that sensational developments will follow. Later, it is, is rumoured as we go to press that John Hetz McFarlane has actually been arrested in the charge of the murder of Jester Jonas Holdacre. It is at least certain that it is a warrant has been issued. There have been further and sinister developments in the investigation at Norwood. Besides the signs of a struggle in the room at the unfortunate builder, it is now known that the French windows of his bedroom, which were on the ground floor, were found to be open, that there were marks as if some bulky object had been dra- dragged across the wood pile, and finally, it is asserted that charred remains have been found among the charcoal ash of the fire. The police theory is that a most sensational crime has been committed, that the victim is clubbed to death in his own bedroom, his papers rifled, and his dead body dragged across the wood stack, which was then ignited so as to hide all traces of the crime. The conduct of the criminal investigation has been left in the experienced hands of Inspector Strad of Scotland Yard, who is following up the clues of his accustomed energy and sagacity. Sherlock Holmes listened with closed eyes and fingertips together to this remarkable account. The case certainly has some points of interest, said he in his languid fashion. May I ask in the first place, Mr. Farland, how it is that you are still at liberty, since there seems to be enough evidence to justify your arrest? I live at Torrington House, Blackheath, with my parents, Mr. Holmes. But last night, having to do business very late with Mr. Jonas Oldacre, I stayed at a hotel in Norwood and came to my business from there. I knew nothing of this affair until I was in the train when I read what you have just heard. I at once saw the horrible danger of my position and hurried to put the case into your hands. I have no doubt that I, have been, I should have been arrested either at my city office or at my home. A man followed me to London Bridge Station and I have no doubt... Great heaven, what's that? It was a clang of the bell followed instantly by heavy steps upon the stair. A moment later, our old friend Lestrade appeared in the doorway. Over his shoulder, I caught a glance of two, one or two uniformed policemen outside. Mr John Hector McFarlane, said Lestrade. Unfortunate client rose with a ghastly face. I arrest you for the willful murder of Mr Jonas Oldacre of Lower Norwood. McFarlane turned to us with a gesture of despair and sank into his chair like once more like one who is crushed. One moment, Lestrade, said Holmes. Half an hour more or less can make no difference to you, and the gentleman was about to give us an account of the very interesting affair which might aid us in cleaning it up. I think there will be no difficulty in cleaning it up, said Lestrade grimly. Nonetheless, with your permission, I should be much interested to hear his account. Well, Mr Holmes, it is difficult for me to refuse you anything, for you have been a use one to the force once or twice in the past, and we owe you a good turn at Scotland Yard, said Lestrade. At the same time, I must remain with my prisoner, and I am bound to warn him that anything he may say will appear in evidence against him. I wish nothing better, said our client. All I ask is that you should hear and recognise absolute truth. Lestrade looked at his watch. I'll give you half an hour, said he. I must explain first, said McFarlane, that I knew nothing of Mr Jonas Oldacre. His name is familiar to me. For many years ago, my parents were acquainted with him, but they drifted apart. I was very much surprised, therefore, when yesterday, about three o'clock in the afternoon, you walked into my office in the city. But I was still more astonished when he told me the subject of his visit. He had in his hand several sheets of a notebook, covered with scribbled writing. Here they are, and he laid them upon my table. Here is my will, said he. I want you, Mr McFarlane, to cast into proper legal shape. I shall sit here while you do so. I set myself to copy it, and you can imagine my astonishment when I found that, with some reservations, he had left all his property to me. He had—he was a strange little feral-like man with white eyelashes, and when I looked upon, 
up at him, he found his key, keen grey eyes fixed upon me for an amused expression. I could hardly believe my own sense that I read the terms of the will, but he explained that he was a bachelor with hardly any living relation, and he had known my parents in his youth, and he had always heard of me as a very deserving young man, and was assured his money was in worthy hands. Of course, I could only stammer out my thanks. The will was duly finished, signed and witnessed by my clerk. There it is on the blue paper, and these slips, as I have explained, are the rough draft. Mr Jonas Aldacre then informed me there were a number of documents, building leases, title deeds, mortgages, scrip and so forth, which it was necessary that I should see and understand. He said that his mind should not be easy until the whole thing was settled, and he begged me to come out with him to his house at Norwood that night, bring, bring the will with me, and to arrange matters. Remember, my boy, not one used word to your parents about the affair until everything is settled. You will keep it as a little surprise for them. He was very insistent upon this point, and made me promise it faithfully. You can imagine, Mr Holmes, that I was not in a humour to him, refuse him anything he may ask. He was my benefactor, and all my desire was to carry out his wishes in every particular. I sent a telegram home, therefore, to say that I had important business in hand, and it was impossible for me to say how late I would be. Mr Oldacre told me he was like to have supper with him at nine, as he might not be home before that hour. I had some difficulty in finding his house, however, and it was nearly half past before I reached it. I found him. One moment, said Holmes. Who opened the door? A middle-aged woman who was, I suppose, his housekeeper. And it was she who I presume who mentioned your name. Exactly, said McFarlane. Pray proceed. McFarlane wiped his damp brow and then continued his narrative. I was shown by this woman into a sitting room where a frugal supper was laid out. Afterwards, Mr Jonas Oldacre led me into his bedroom in which there lay stood a heavy safe. This he opened and took out a mass of documents which we went over together. It was between 11 and 12 when we finished. He remarked that we must not disturb the housekeeper. He showed me out through his own French window which had been open all this time. Was the blind down? asked Holmes. I will not be sure, but I believe it was only half down. Yes, I remember how he pulled it up in order to swing open the window. I could not find my stick and he said, Never mind my boy, I shall see a good deal of you now I hope, and I will keep your stick until you come back to claim it. I left him there, the safe open, and the papers made up in packets upon the table. It was so late that I could not get back to Blackheath, so I spent the night at the Arnley Arms, and I knew nothing more until I read of this horrible affair in the morning. Anything more that you would like to ask, Mr Holmes? Fledger Strad, whose eyebrows had gone up once or twice during this remarkable explanation. Not until I have been to Blackheath. You mean to Norwood, said Lestrade. Oh yes, no doubt that is what I must have meant, said Holmes, with a enigmatical smile. The Strad had learned by more experience than he would care to acknowledge that that razor-like brain could cut through that which was impenetrable to him. I saw him look curiously at my companion. I think I should like to have a word with you presently, Mr Sherlock Holmes, said he. Now, Miss McFarlane, two of my constables at the door, and there is a four-wheeler waiting. The wretched young man arose, and for a last beseeching glance at us, walked from the room. The officers conducted him to the cab, but the Strad remained. Holmes had picked up the papers which formed the rough draft of the will, and was looking at them with the keenest interest upon his face. There are some points about that document, Lestrade, are there not? said he, pushing them over. The official looked at them with a puzzled expression. I can read the first few lines, and these in the middle of the second page, and one or two at the end. Those are as clear as print, said he, but the writing in between is very bad, and there are three places where I cannot read it at all. What do you make of that? said Holmes. Well, what do you make of it? as it was written in a train. The good writing representations, the bad writing movements, and the very bad writing passing over points. A scientific exper- 
would pronounce it once it was drawn up in a suburban line, since nowhere else even in the immediate vicinity of the great city could there be so quick a succession of points. Granting that its whole journey was occupied in drawing up the mill, and the train was in express, only stopping once between Norwood and London Bridge. The Strad began to laugh. You're too many for me when you get upon your theories, Mr Holmes, said he. How does this bear upon the case? Well, it corroborates the young man's story to the extent the will was drawn up by Jonas Aldaker on his journey yesterday. It's curious, is it not, that a man should drop so important a document in so haphazard a fashion. He suggests that he did not think it was of much practical importance. If a man drew up a will, which he did not ever intend to be infective, he might do it so. Well, he drew up his own death warrant at the same time, said Lestrade. What do you think, sir? Don't you? Well, it's quite possible. The case is not clear to me yet. Not clear? Well, if that isn't clear, what could be clear? Here's a young man who learns suddenly that if a certain older man dies, he will succeed to a fortune. What does he do? He says nothing to anyone, but he arranges that he shall go out with some pretext to see his client later that night. He waits until the only other person in the house is in bed, and in the solitude of the man's room, he murders him, burns his body in the wood pile, and departs to a neighbouring hotel. The bloodstains in the room and also in the stick are very slight. It is possible that he imagined his crime to be a bloodless one, and hoped that if the body were consumed it would hide all trace of the method of his death, traces which, for some reason, must have pointed to him. Is not all this obvious? It strikes me, my good Strad, as being just a title too obvious, said Holmes. You do not imag- add imagination to your other great qualities, but if you could for one moment put yourself in the place of this young man, would you choose the very night after the will had been made to commit your crime? Would it not seem dangerous to you to make so very close a relation between the two incidents? Again, would you do it as an occasion when you are known to be in the house, when a servant has let you in? And finally, would you take the great pains to conceal the body, and yet leave your own stick as a sign you were a criminal? Confess Lestrade, this is all very unlikely. As to the stick, Mr Holmes, you know as well as I do that a criminal is often flooded, and does other things which a cool man would avoid. He was very likely to be afraid to go back to the room. Give me another theory which would fit the facts. I could very easily give you half a dozen, said Holmes. Here, for example, is a very possible and even probable one. I make you a free present of it. The older man is showing documents which are of evident value. A passing tramp sees him, sees him through the window, the blind of which is only half down. Excellent, sir, enter the tramp. He seizes a stick which he observes her, kills the old acre, and departs after the burning the body. Why should the tramp burn the body? For the matter of that, why should McFarlane? To hide some evidence. Possibly the tramp wanted to avoid any hide that murdered all any possibly the tramp wanted to hide any murder at all had been committed. And why did the tramp take nothing? Because there were papers that he could not negotiate. Lestrade shook his head, although it seemed to be that his manner was less absolutely assured than before. Well, Mr Sherlock Holmes, you may look for your tramp, and while you are finding him, we will hold on to our man. The future will show which is right. Just notice this point, Mr Holmes, that so far as we know, none of the papers were removed, and the prisoner is the one man in the world who had no reason for removing them, since he was heir at law, and would come into them in any case. My friend seemed struck by this remark. I don't mean to deny that the evidence is in some way very strongly favours your theory, said he. I only wish to point out that there are other theories possible. As you say, the future will decide. Good morning. I dare say in the course of the day I shall drop in at Norwood and see how you are going on. When the detective departed, my friend rose and made his preparation for the day's work with the alert air of a man who had a congenial task before him. My first movement, Watson, 
said he, as he bustled into his frock coat, must, as I said, be in the direction of Blackheath. And why not Norwood? Because we have in this case one singular incident coming in close to the heel of another singular incident. The police are making the mistake of concentrating their attention upon the second because it happens to be the one which is actually criminal. But it is evident to me that the logical way to approach this case is to begin by trying to throw some light upon the first incident, the curious will so suddenly made and so unexpected an air. It may do something to simplify what followed. No, my dear fellow, I don't think you can help me. There is no prospect of danger, or I should not dream of studying it without you. I trust that when I shall see you in the evening, I will be able to report that I have been able to do something for this unfortunate youngster, who has thrown himself upon my protection. Let's go take a break for a few minutes. Here's the Mirror Galaxy from the meantime. <laughs>
Okay, had a quick break. Now back to the story. It was late when my friend returned, and I could see, by a glance at Haggard and Lynch's face, the high hopes which he, had, which, which he had started had not been fulfilled. For an hour he droned away upon his violin, endeavouring to soothe his own ruffled spirits. At last he flung down the instrument and plunged into a detailed account of his misadventures. It's all going wrong, Watson. All as wrong as it can go. I kept a bold face before Lestrade, but upon my soul, I believe that for once the fellow was on the right track and we are on the wrong. All my instincts are one way, and all the facts are on the other, and I much feel that British juries have not yet attained that pinch of intelligence when they will give precedence to my theories over Lestrade's facts. Did you go to Blackheath? Yes, Watson, I went there, and I found very quickly that the late lamented old acre was a pretty considerable blackguard. The father was away in search of his son, the mother was at home, a little fluffy blue-eyed person, and a tremor of fear and indignation. Of course, she would not admit even the possibility of his guilt, but she would also express neither surprise nor regret at the fate of old Dacre. On the contrary, she spoke of him, thought, she spoke of him with such bitterness that she was unconsciously considerably strengthening the case of the police, for, of course, if her son had heard her speak of the man in this fashion, it would predispose him toward hatred and violence. He was more like a malignant and cunning ape than a human being, said she, and he always was, ever since he was a young man. You knew him at that time, said I. But yes, I knew him well. In fact, he was an old sister of mine. Thank heaven that I had the sense to turn away from and to marry a better, if poorer man. I was engaged to Mr Holmes when I heard a shocking story of how he had turned a cat loose in an aviary, and I was so horrified at his brutal cruelty that I would have nothing more to do with him. She rummaged in a bureau, and presently she produced a photograph of a man, a woman, shamely defaced and mutilated with a knife. That is my own photograph, she said. He sent it to me in that state, with his curse, upon my wedding morning. <coughs> well, said I, at least he has forgiven you now, since he has left all his property to your son. Neither my son nor I want anything from Jonas Oldacre, dead or alive. She cried with a proper spirit. There is a God in heaven, Mr Holmes, and that same God who has punished that wicked man will show, in his own good time, my son's hands are guiltless of his blood. Well, I tried one or two leads, but I could get at nothing which would help our hypothesis, and several points which would make against it. I gave it up at last, and off I went to Norwood. The place, Deep Dean House, is a big modern villa of staring brick, standing on its own grounds for a laurel-shaped lawn in front of it. To the right and some distance back from the road was the timber yard which has been the scene of the fire. I have a rough sketch of it on a leaf of my notebook. The window on the left is the one which opens the old acre room. You can look into some road, you see. That's about the only bit of consolation I have had today. The strad was not there, but his head constable did the honours. They had just found a great treasure trove. They had spent the morning raking amongst the ashes of the burnwood pile, and besides the charred organic remains, they had secured several discoloured metal discs. I examined them with care, and there was no doubt they were trouser buttons. I even distinguished that one of them was marked with the name of Hams, who was Old Acre's tailor. I then worked along carefully, very carefully for signs and traces, but this drought has made everything as hard as iron. Nothing was to be seen save that some body or bundle had been dragged to the low privet hedge which is in line with the wood pile. All that, of course, fits with the official theory. I, cradled, I crawled about the lawn with August on my back, but I got up at the end of an hour no wiser than before.
Well, after this fiasco, I went into the bedroom and examined that also. The bloodstains were very slight, mere smears and discolorations, but undoubtedly fresh. The stick had been removed, but there also the marks were slight. There is no doubt about the stick belonging to our client. He admits it. Footmarks of both men can be made out in the carpet, but none of any third person, which is again a tick for the other side. They were piling up their score all the time, and we were at a standstill. Only one little heme of hope did I get, and yet it amounted to nothing. I examined the contents of the safe, most of which had been taken out and left on the table. The papers had been made up into sealed envelopes, one or two of which had been opened up by the police. They were not, so far as I could judge, of any great value, nor did the bank book show that Mr Oldacre was in such very affluent circumstances. But it seemed to me that all the papers were not there. There were allusions to some deeds, possibly the more valuable, which I could not find. This, of course, if he could definitively prove it, would return Lestrade's argument against himself, but who would steal such a thing if he knew he would shortly inherit it? Finally, having drawn upon every other cover and picked up no scent, I tried my luck with the housekeeper. Mrs Lexington is her name, a little silent person with suspicious and sidelong eyes. I should tell something if she, she could tell something if she would, I am convinced of it, but she was as close as wax. Yes, she'd let Mr. Wold McFarlane at half past nine. She wished her hand had withered before she had done so. She had gone to bed at half past ten. Her room was on the other end of the house and she could hear nothing of what happened. Mr. McFarlane had left his hat and to the best of her belief, a stick in the hall. She had been awakened by the alarm of fire. Her poor, dear master had certainly been murdered. Had he any, enemy? had he any enemies? Oh, every man had enemies, but Mr. Oldacre kept very much to himself and only met people in the way of business. She had seen the buttons and was sure they had belonged to the clothes which she had worn last night. The wood pile was very dry for it had not rained for a month. It burned like tinder, and by the time she reached the spot nothing could be seen for but flames. She and all the firemen smelled the burned flesh from inside it. She knew nothing of the papers, nor of Mr Oldacre's private affairs. So, my dear Watson, there's my report for failure. And yet, and yet, he clenched his thin hands in a paroxysm of conviction. I know it's wrong. I feel it in my bones. There is something that has not come out, and that housekeeper knows something. There was a sort of sulky defiance in her eyes, which only goes with guilty knowledge. <sighs> However, there's no good talking about it anymore, Watson. But unless some lucky chance comes our way, I fear the Norwood disappearance case will not figure in that chronicle of our successes which I foresee that a patient public will sooner or later have to endure. Surely, said I, the man's appearance would go far with any jury. That is a dangerous argument, my dear Watson. Remember that terrible murderer, Bert Stevens, who wanted him to, us to get him off in 87? Was there ever a more mild-mannered, Sunday school sort of man? It is true. Unless we succeed in establishing an alternative theory, this man is lost. You'd hardly find a flaw in the case which can now be presented against him, and all further investigation would serve to strengthen it. By the way, there is one little curious point about those papers which may serve as a starting point for an inquiry. On looking over the bank book, I found that low state of the balance, principally due to large cheques which have been made out over the past year to Mr Cornelius. I confess I should be very interested to know who this Mr Cornelius may be, with whom a retired builder has such very large transactions. Failing any other information, my researchers must take the direction of inquiry at the bank for the gentleman who has cashed these cheques. But I fear, my dear fellow, the case wounded ingloriously by Lestrade hanging our client which will certainly be a triumph for Scotland Yard.
I do not know how far Sherlock Holmes took any sleep that night, but when I came into breakfast, I found him pale and harassed. His bright eyes, the brighter for the dark shadows around them. The carpet around his ear was littered with the early edition of the papers. An open telegram lay upon the table. What do you think of this, Watson? He said. He asked, tossing it across. It was from Norwood and ran as follows. Important pressure to hand. McFarlane's guilt definitively established. Advise you to abandon case. Lestrade. That sounds serious, said I. Is Lestrade's little cock-a-hoop the door of victory? Holmes answered with a bitter smile. And yet it may be premature to abandon the case. After all, fresh evidence is a two-edged thing and may possibly cut in a very different direction to that which Lestrade imagines. Take your breakfast, Watson, and we shall go out together and see what we can do. I feel as if I shall need your moral company and moral support today. My friend had no breakfast himself, for it was one of his peculiarities that in his moment of his more intense moments he would permit himself no food, and I have known him to presume upon his iron strength until he faced from pure negation. At present I cannot spare energy and therefore for the digestion, he would say in answer to my medical remonstrances. I was not surprised, therefore, when this morning he left his untouched meal behind him and started with me for Norwood. A crowd of morbid sightseers were still gathered round Deep Dean House, which is just such a suburban villa as I had pictured. Within the gates Lestrade met us, his face flushed with victory, his manner grossly triumphant. Well, Mr Holmes, have you proved to be wrong yet? Have you found your tramp? <laughs> he cried. I have formed no conclusion whatsoever, my companion answered. But we formed ours yesterday, and now it proves to be correct. So you must acknowledge that we have been a little in front of you this time, Mr Holmes. You certainly have the ear of something unusual having hap- occurred, said Holmes. Lestrade laughed loudly. You don't like, like like being beaten any more than the rest of us do, said he. A man can't expect always to have his own way, can he, Dr Watson? Step this way, if you please, gentlemen, and I think I can convince you once and for all that it was John McFarlane who did this crime. He led us through the passage and out into a dark hall beyond. This is where young McFarlane must have come out to get his hat after the crime was done, said he. Now look at this. With dramatic suddenness he struck a match, and by its light exposed a stain of blood upon the whitewashed wall. As he held the match nearer, I saw that it was more than a stain. It was the well-marked print of a thumb. Look at that with your magnifying glass, Mr Holmes. Yes, I'm doing so. You are aware that no two thumb marks are alike? I have heard something of the kind. Well then, would you please compare that print with, the, with this wax impression of young McFarlane's thumb, taken by my orders this morning? As he held the wax imprint close to the blood stain, it did not take a magnifying glass to see that the two were undoubtedly from the same thumb. It was evident to me that our unfortunate client was lost. This is final, said Lestrade. Yes, that is final, I involuntarily echoed. It is final, said Holmes. Something in his tone caught my ear. I turned to look at him. An extraordinary change had come over his face. It was writhing with inner merriment. His two eyes were shining like stars. It seemed to me that he was making desperate efforts to restrain a convulsive attack of laughter. Dear me, dear me, he said at last. Well now, who would have thought it? And how deceptive appearances may be, to sure. Such a nice young man to look at. It is a lesson to us not to trust our own judgment, is it not, Lestrade? Yes, some of us are a little too inclined too much to cocksure, Mr Holmes, said Lestrade. The man's insolent was maddening, but we could not resent it. 
What a providential thing that this young man should press his right thumb against the wall and taking his hat from the peg. Such a very natural action too, if you come to think of it. Holmes was not outwardly calm, but his whole body gave a wriggle of suppressed excitement as he spoke. By the way, Lestrade, who made this remarkable discovery? It was the housekeeper, Mrs Lexington, who drew the night constable's attention to it. Where was the night constable? He remained in guard in the bedroom where the crime was committed, so as to see that nothing was touched. But why didn't see the police see the mark yesterday? Well, we had no reason to make a careful examination of the hall. Besides, it's not in a very prominent place, as you can see. No, no, of course not. I suppose there is no doubt that the mark was there yesterday. Lestrade looked at Holmes as he thought he was going out of his mind. I confess I myself was expressed with surprise at both his hilarious manner and his wild, rather wild observation. I don't know whether you think McFarlane came out of Gale at the end of the, in the dead of the night in order to strengthen the evidence against himself, said Lestrade. I'll leave it to any expert in the world whether that is the mark of his thumb. It is unquestionably the mark of his thumb. There, that's enough, said Lestrade. I am a practical man, Mr Holmes, and when I have got my evidence I come to my conclusions. If you have anything to say, you will find me writing my report in the sitting room. Holmes had recovered his equanimity, although I seemed to de- still seemed to detect gleams of amusement in his expression. Dear me, this is a very sad development, Watson, is it not? said he. And yet there are singular points which hold out some hope to our client. I am delighted to hear it, said I heartily. I was afraid it was all up with him. I would hardly go as far to say that, my dear Watson. The fact that there is one really serious flaw in this evidence to which our friend attaches so much importance is great. Indeed, Holmes, what is it? Only this. I know that mark was not yesterday when I examined the hall. And now, Watson, let us have a little stroll round in the sunshine. If my confu- if I confuse brain with a heart into some which some warmth of hope was returning, I accompanied my friend in a walk round the garden. Holmes took each face of the house in turn and examined it with great interest. He then led the way inside and went over the whole building from basement to attic. Most of the rooms were unfurnished, but nonetheless Holmes examined them all minutely. Finally, on the top in the top corridor, which ran outside three untenanted bedrooms, he was again seized by a spasm of merriment. There are really some very unique features about this case, Watson said he. I think it is time now that we took our friend Lestrade into our confidence. He had had this little smile at our expense, and perhaps we may be able to do as much by him if my reading of this problem proves to be correct. Yes, yes, I think I see how we should approach it. The Scotland Yard inspector was still arriving, the, writing in the parlour when Holmes interrupted him. I understand that you are writing a report of this case, said he. So I am. Don't you think that it may be a little premature? I can't help but thinking that your evidence is not complete. Lestrade knew my friend too well to disregard his words. He laid down his pen and looked curiously at him. What do you mean, Mr Holmes? Only that it is an important witness whom you have not seen. Can you produce him? I think I can. Then do so. I will do my best. How many constables have you? There are three within call. Excellent, said Holmes. May I ask if there are all large, able-bodied men with powerful voices? I have no doubt they are, although I fail to see what their voices have to do with it. Perhaps I can help you to see that and one or two other things as well, said Holmes. Kindly summon your men, and I will try. Five minutes later, the three policemen had assembled in the hall. 
and the outhouse you will find a considerable quantity of straw, said Holmes. I will ask you to carry in two bundles of it. I think it will be of the greatest assistance in producing the witness whom I require. Thank you very much. Now, I believe you have some matches in your pocket, Watson. Now, Mr Lestrade, I will ask you all to accompany me to the top landing. As I've said, there was a broad corridor there, which ran outside three empty bedrooms. At one end of the corridor, we were all marshalled by Sherlock Holmes, the constable grinning, and my friend Lestrade staring at my friend with amazement, expectation and derision chasing each other across his features. Holmes stood before the air conjurer who was performing a trick. Would you kindly send one air console for two buckets of water? Put the straw there on the floor, free from the wall on either side. Now, I think they were all ready. Lestrade's face had begun to grow red and angry. I don't know if you're playing a game with us, Mr Sherlock Holmes, said he. If you begin, if you know anything, you can surely say it fell as Tom Fiore. I assure you, my good Lestrade, that I have an excellent reason for everything that I do. You may possibly remember that you chased me a little, some hours ago, when the sun seemed on your side of the hedge, so you must not judge me a little pomp and ceremony now. Might I ask you, Watson, to open that window, and then to put a match to the edge of the straw? I did so, and, driven by the drought, a coil of grey smoke swirled down the corridor, while the, dr- while the dry straw crackled and flamed. Now, we must see if I can find this witness for you, Lestrade. Might I ask you to join me all to join me in the cry of fire? Now then, one, two, three. Fire! We all yelled. Thank you, I will trouble you once again. Fire! And just once more, ladies and gentlemen, and all together. Fire! The shout must have rung over Norwood. It had hardly died away when an amazing thing happened. A door suddenly flew open out of what appeared to be solid wall at the end of the corridor, and a little wizened man darted out of it, like a rabbit out of his burrow. Capital, said Mr Holmes calmly. Watson, a bucket of water over the straw. That will do. Lestrade, allow me to present you with your principal missing witness, Mr Jonas Oldacre. The detective stared at the newcomer with blank amazement. The latter was peering in, was blinking the right light of the corridor and peering at it and, and, and a smouldering fire with an odious face, crafty, vicious, malignant, with shifty little eyes and white lashes. What's this in, said Lestrade at last? What have you been doing all this time, eh? Old Acre gave an uneasy laugh, shrinking back from the furious red face of the dining detective. I've done no harm. No harm. You have done your best to get an innocent man hanged. If it wasn't for the gentleman here, I am not sure that you would not have succeeded. I am sure, sir. It was only my practical joke. Oh, a joke, was it? You won't find your laugh on your side, I promise you. Take him down and keep him in the sitting room until I come. Mr Holmes, he continued when they had gone. I could not speak before the constables, but I don't mind saying in the presence of Dr Watson that this is the brightest thing you have done yet although it is a mystery to me how you have done it. You have saved an innocent man's life, and you have prevented a great, very grave scandal which would have ruined my reputation in the force. The stra- Holmes smiled and clapped the stride upon his shoulder. Instead of being ruined, my good sir, you will find your reputation has been enormously enhanced. Just make a few alterations that I report you were writing, and they will st- understand how difficult it is to throw dust in the eyes of Inspector Lestrade. And you don't want your name to appear? Not at all. The work is his own reward. Perhaps I shall get the credit also at some distant day, and I permit my zealous historian to lay down his full scap once more. 
Air Watson? Oh no, let us see where this rat has been lurking. A laughing platter partition had been run across the passage six feet from the end, with a door cunningly concealed in it. It was lit within by slits under the eaves. A few articles of furniture and a supply of food and water were within, together with a number of books and papers. Now, there's the advantage of being a builder, said Holmes, as we came out. He was able to fix up his own little hiding place without any confederate, save, of course, that precious housekeeper of hers, who should I should lose no time in adding to your bag, Lestrade. I'll take your advice, but how did you know of this place, Mr Holmes? I made up my mind that this fellow was hiding in the house. When I paced one corridor and found it six feet shorter than the corresponding one before, below, it was pretty clear where he was. I thought it, he had not the nerve to lie quiet before an alarm of fire. We could, of course, have gone in and taken him, but it amused me to make him reveal myself, himself. Besides, I owed you a little mystification Lestrade for your chaff this morning. Well, sir, you certainly got equal of me on that. But how in the world did you know he was in the house at all? The fun, Mark Lestrade. You said it was final, and it was in a very different sense. I knew he had not been there the day before. I pay a good, atten- a good deal of attention to matters of detail, as you know, and I had obse- examined the hall and was sure that the wall was clear. Therefore, it had been put on during the night. But how? Very simply. When these packets were sealed up, Jonas Oldacre got McFarlane to secure one of his seals by putting his thumb upon the soft wax. It would be done so quickly and so naturally that I dare say the young man has himself has no recollection of the of it. Very likely, it just so happened that Oldacre had himself no notion of it. the use to which he would put it to. Rooting over that the case in that den of his, it suddenly struck him what absolutely damning evidence he could make against McFarlane by using that thumb mark. It was the simplest thing in the world for him to take a wax impression from the seal, to moisten it as much blood as he could get from a pinprick, and to put the mark upon the wall during the night, either with his own hand or with that of his housekeeper. If you examine those documents which he took with him into the retreat, I will lay you a wager that you will find the seal with, him, with the thumb mark upon it. Wonderful, said Lestrade. Wonderful. It's always clear as crystal, as you put it. Well, what was the object of this deep deception, Mr. Holmes? It was amusing to me to see how the detective's overbearing manner had changed suddenly to that of a child asking questions of his teacher. Well, I don't think that is very hard to explain. A very deep, vicious, vindictive person is the gentleman who now is now waiting for us downstairs. You know that he's once refused by McFarlane's mother? You don't? I told you you should go to Blackheath first and Norwood afterwards. Well, this injury, as you would be considerate, it has rankled in his wicked scheming brain, and all his life he has longed for vengeance, but never seen his chance. During the last year or two, things have gone against him. Secret speculation, I think, and he finds himself in a bad way. He determines to swindle his creditors, and for this purpose he pays certain large cheques to certain Mr Cornelius, who is, I imagine, himself under another name. I have not traced these cheques yet. I have no doubt they were banked under the, that name at some provincial town where Old Acre from time to time led a double existence. He intended to change his name altogether, draw this money and vanish, vanish, starting life again elsewhere. Well, that's likely enough. It would strike me that in disappearing he might throw all pursuit of his track, and at the same time have an ample and crushing revenge upon his old sweetheart. If he could give the impression that he had been murdered by his only child, 
It was a masterpiece of villainy, and he cried it out like a master. But he had not... It was a net... The idea of the will, which would give an obvious motive for the crime, the secret visit unknown to his own parents, the retention of the stick, the blood, and the animal remains and buttons in the woodpile, all were admirable. It was a net from which it seemed to me a few years ago that was no possible escape. But he had not that supreme gift of the artist, the knowledge of when to stop. He wished to improve that which was already perfect, to draw the rope tighter yet around the neck of his unfortunate victim, until he ruined all. Let us descend Lestrade. There are just one or two questions that I would ask him. The malignant creature was seated in his own parlour, with a policeman upon either side of him. It was a joke, my good sir, a practical joke, nothing more. He whined incessantly. I assure you, I simply concealed myself in order to see the effect of my disappearance, and I am sure you would not be so unjust as to imagine that I would have allowed any harm to fall you, poor young Miss McFarlane. Not for a jury to decide, said Lestrade. Anyhow, we shall have you on a charge of conspiracy, if not for attempted murder. And you will probably find that your creditors will impound the banking account of Mr Cornelius, said Holmes. The little man stared, and turned his malignant eyes upon my friend. I had to thank you for a good deal, said he. Perhaps I'll pay my debt some day. Holmes smiled indulgently. I fancy that for some years you'll find your time very fully occupied, said he. By the way, what was it you put into that... Woodpile, beside your old trousers. A dead dog or rabbits, or what? You won't tell? Dear me, how very unkind of you. Well, I dare say a couple of rabbits would account full for the blood and for the charred ashes. If you ever write, seems if you ever write an account, Watson, you can make rabbits serve your turn. The end. And that was the adventure of Sherlock Holmes. Eh, the adventure of the Norwood Builder but, eh, from Sherlock Holmes. Um, yeah, not my best reading, but these things happen. I hope you enjoyed it anyway. Anyway, we're near the end of the year, hence the old Lang sign. It's my last show of the year, and I want you to all to have a very happy new year. And reminder, if you feel in need for someone to talk to and you don't have anyone at such a time of year when so many people are so being so happy you can call someone like Martin's woman 6123 anytime but for me um, that's it that's it for the year basically so again wish you all a very happy new year and I have one track tonight to go at the end here and I'm playing over Indentation track but it's one I've not played before because it's a wee bit slow for like what I normally play but I feel it's right appropriate tonight it's with Indentation your farewell. Anyway, Camel Class Companionship in a few minutes, but for me, for the year, night night.